would be biblical, wouldn't it? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word, thankful for the truth of of this song. Uh, We do uh, come to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and one Trinity. Lord, you are the God who reigns over all. And we come to bow our hearts to you and bow our lives to you, to give our lives in worship to you. And we need to know how to better do that. If we come here knowing it all, not being able to learn, then um, we come arrogantly and we come as if we have already arrived. And yet each time we come to the Scripture, we need to be willing to be open to the truth and the transformation that comes by being renewed in the spirit of our mind. So would you do that now for us? Do the work in us that we can't do in ourselves, and that is to change our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Corinthian church uh, was arrogant. They had been using their Christian freedoms as a way to justify their selfishness and their lack of care for one another. They thought that their freedoms were all about them individually, But their freedoms and our freedoms, Christian freedoms that is, were never meant to be used to serve our own lusts. Instead, our Christian freedoms were given to us in order to serve the church. The Spirit has unified us around one truth, that is the message of the gospel. And we were made to glorify Christ with our body. One of the key ways that we glorify Christ in this body of believers is by using our gifts in service to one another. So that's um, kind of a summary of what we've looked at at the beginning of chapter 12. Now I want to move on into the last part of chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. So would you follow along as I read? This is the Word of God. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable on these, we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individual members and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first, Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. Then, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? 
All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. So the last part of chapter 12, Paul is trying to get us to see that God has equipped each of us with spiritual gifts for the mutual care of the church. God has equipped each of us with, uh, I don't want to say unique, but diverse gifts. And I, if I said unique, then, then that would mean that only one person has one gift. Uh, but that's not the case. We, we share some of the same kinds of gifts. Um, but but he, we all di- have different kinds of gifts. And the purpose of those gifts is for the mutual care of the church. So Paul explains this in, in, in two ways. First, he uses a metaphor for the spiritual body. He uses the physical body to be a metaphor for the church. And then he applies it in verses 27 through 31. He applies that metaphor to the body of Christ. So first, he kind of lays out this metaphor. That's what all this talk about the eye and the ear and, and the sense of smell and all that, that kind of thing. That's all in verses 14 to 26. He's trying to lay out a metaphor so that we can understand better how God has put together this one unit that is diverse. It's unified, but it's diversified. It's diversified, but it's still united. So let's look at that first section. Paul uses the physical body as a metaphor for the spiritual body. And the first thing that he wants us to see in verses 14 through 19 is that every body part has value. Every body part has value. The first reason that we know that every body part has value is because of the diversity of the body. Look at verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. Now, we need to understand that we're still on the topic of spiritual gifts. Notice the first word there in verse 14 is the word for. And Paul is going back to what he's been talking about in verses 1-13, through 13, which is, skip up to verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. So, about this issue that we need to discuss... Spiritual gifts. Uh, here's, here's what you need to know. And he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts and the variety of gifts and that the Spirit has gifted each person with one. And then he talks about, uh, he, he opens up that metaphor for the body in verses 12 and 13. And then he uses this word for to connect what he's saying. So he's continuing his thought here. And we saw last time that the Spirit creates a diversity of gifts in order to exalt Christ by edifying the church. In verses 4 through 6, we, we, we saw that diversity is good because the triune God is diverse. Uh, and that our diversity is sourced in God. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't balk at it or, or resist it. Verse 7, we know that diversity is good because it has a godly purpose. That is our common good, our spiritual well-being. And then verse 11, we also know that diversity is good because every gift is distributed by the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 and 13, he uses the imagery of the body and says that we're all baptized into one body. And now he says the body is not one member, but many. So it is true that the Spirit unifies us into one body, but if we take, we take that truth, which cannot be denied, if we take that truth and overemphasize it to the exclusion of diversity, then we come up with this monstrosity of a one body part body. One body that's made up of one body part. It, it's, it's, it's an ugly picture. And he's going to even draw that out here in the text. 
The body is not one member. And so this image, this metaphor of the body actually helps to illustrate the point that each part of our spiritual body, the church, is necessary for the overall function of the one unit. That is that God has divinely planned that we would all be part of one body, but we would also have this planned diversity. And this will be important because if we fail to see this, then we will look at other people's gifts and we'll look down on them in many cases, right? Like, I have the better gifts, and so I'll look down on these other people who don't have the same gifts as I do. And if we don't see that each body part is necessary and important for the, for the well-being of the body, then we'll exalt ourselves. We'll become proud. We'll see that as we go through the text. The second reason that we know that every body part has value is because of the implausibility of an autonomous body part. Okay, and, and I'm uh, using big words here because I couldn't think of a better way to put it, but it's implausible to think that one body part would be of any value disconnected from your body, right? That's what he's talking about in verses 15 to 16. So he uses this body metaphor by showing the absurd, uh, absurdity of one body part not needing another. So just because a body part is, is not the, the body part it prefers, I mean, he kind of personifies the body parts, like in verse 15, the foot. He's kind of frustrated. He's a little bit jealous that he's not the hand. And so for that reason, there's no use for me. You know, someone might look at themselves. I mean, you you easily see the connection, which makes this such a good analogy. Someone might look at themselves and their spiritual gift and say, you know what, I'm not this. And therefore, there's no value for me in the church. And what Paul wants us to see is that no one member, even, even with their seemingly less spiritual gift, is left out or unimportant or useless. Every body part has value. It is implausible for a foot to say, I have, I'm not as useful as the hand, so I should not be part of this body or should, I, should, I, I don't have any value. And the same thing is true about the ear in verse 16 when he looks, he can't look, but when he thinks about the eye, he, he thinks that he's a lesser body part in that sense. He's not part of the body. So it's implausible to think in those terms. The third, um, and this is even more wordy than the last one, so I apologize for this, but um, I was trying to think of a better way to to, to put this, but maybe you can help me. The monstrosity of spiritual cloning. Okay, the, the, it's, it's monstrous to think that all one body would be made up of just an eye. Right? That's what he says in verse 17. I mean, what would, what would it be like if the whole body were an eye? You know, we have all sorts of um, imaginative... Um, uh, artists and um, and uh, TV show creators and all this that kind of come up with that put personify some of the body parts in that way and and can um, can kind of almost make it comical, but but the reality is that wouldn't work in life if our whole body were one thing and so it's it's a monstrous sight to consider that all of us have to have the same kind of spiritual gift. That's the point. Right, that we all are alike. 
They were all the eye. It's monstrous. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Um, just by thinking of, this is a, a different analogy and may not connect perfectly, but, but as helpful as I was thinking about it. Imagine, um, let's think about the workforce in our country. Okay, if, if we were not diversified as a country in the types of jobs that were out there. So what would our country be like if everyone was a farmer? No offense to farmers, but, but frankly, that would be terrible. Even for farmers, it would be terrible. Do you know why? Because who would make their tractors? Who would develop the technology that they need to, to uh, have the maximum production? Who would build houses? Who would ship their goods around the country and the world? Who would do the work on the roads? Right? The point is, is farming is critical. And they cannot be dismissed or removed from our society. We need them. But we also need the other jobs in our country as well so that they can do what they do. No one farmer can do everything on his own. He is dependent on truck drivers, truck manufacturers, doctors, grocery store workers, etc. So imagine what the church would be like if everyone had the same gift that you value most. So of all the spiritual gifts, which one do you value most? And now imagine what the church would be like if every single person had that same spiritual gift. Maybe it's the gift of administration or governing. I mean, what would the church be like? Or what if it's the gift of, of, um, of helps? That's all that people do, but they don't know how to teach or something. Or what if it's the gift of teaching, but they don't do anything else? See, it doesn't work that way. There has to be diversity in the physical body and there has to be diversity in the body of Christ. No one body part can do all the functions of the rest of the body. Notice how he says this in verse 19. If they were all one member, where would the body be? So in other words, when we think of a body, we think of unity, but we should also think of a body as diversity. And so there is no body if all of the members are one, if they're all the same. There has to be diversity in order for it to be a legitimate body. And I would say the same thing is true about the spiritual body as well. And this highlights the problem in Corinth, right? They were exalting certain spiritual gifts over other spiritual gifts that, that people had and, and, and kind of putting them on a scale. Like these are more important, those are less important, and, and we don't really need you. And the people were starting to feel the, the people who had the lesser gifts were starting to feel that way, right? They're thinking, well, since I'm not the hand, then I'm no good as a foot. Every body part has value. Secondly, in verses 20 and 21, we see that every body part is interdependent. Interdependent. So, not independent. No body part is independent can't just exist on its own. It needs the other body parts. Um, and it's not... It's, all, it's also not... Uh, how can I say this? Completely dependent on all the other parts. In other words, that is, it has no function or value at all in itself. We kind of covered that in the last point. Okay, so let's take a hand, for example. A hand is dependent on the arm... The, the, um, the heart, right? 
the torso, the brain to be able to send it the signals that it needs. And um, so it is dependent on all those parts. But it also is not, it's not helpless or valueless. It still has value. And it, it, so the other parts of the body actually are dependent on the hand. I guess that's the idea of interdependent. It's dependent on the other body parts. The other body parts are dependent on it. So from one perspective, the foot may envy the hand, but from the other perspective, the eye could disregard the need for the hand. And the point is that both views are wrong. One body part is not more important than the other. One body part is not unnecessary. Or we could say it this way, no body part is unnecessary. All are dependent on one another. All are interdependent of one another. Let me just show you that in the text. Uh, verse 20, But now there are many members, but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Can't say that. Why? Because he needs it. Each body part needs the other body parts. They all work together. They're all necessary. Thirdly, every body part is unified as a whole. In verses 22 through 26, every body part is unified. So while there is diversity, and while each part is necessary, while each part has value, the whole body is unified as a whole. And so that means there should be no contempt for other body parts that seem of lesser value. Verse 22 says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. So, you know, there, there are some body parts that are more prominent than others, right? They're seen more easily, right? For me, probably my nose, right? So it's, it's there. You can't miss it. It doesn't often get hidden. It's just there. But there are other body parts that are less presentable. And yet, that doesn't make them any less important. So instead of envy or contempt for other body parts, we actually treat all the body parts with honor. In fact, what Paul's saying is that the body parts that are actually less presentable in public are actually treated with more honor, aren't they? We actually care for them better than we do the ones that are seen more often. Let's go back to society and think about this in terms of the workforce. There are some members of society that have contributed so much, some individuals that have contributed so much to our society with regard to technology or advancement in some area that we would find that they are the most honorable and it would be hard to get rid of one of them. Right? So think about it. Think about this example. Whom would you rather give up if you had the choice? Just over the last 50 years, if you had the choice, would you rather give up Bill Gates or an average farmer? Okay, I'm not picking on farmers today. I'm going to argue that they're important here in just a second. But if you had to give, get rid of one, I mean, how much would you notice if an average farm, just one average farmer were not there, you wouldn't notice. Yeah, depends on where you live. Good point. But, but we would notice if Bill Gates were gone or Steve Jobs when he was at it in his heyday, right? Because of the advancement in technology, because of the philanthropy. He's had so much influence 
on our lives. We can spare one farmer. But think about it this way. What if, what if we had to give up Bill Gates as the chairman of the board at Microsoft right now? Okay, what if we had to give up all the chairmen of the board in the entire country or all the farmers? See, in that case, we'd be happy to give up all the chairmen of the board. We can't give up all the farmers. So that the parts that we, we might look at in our society, and they may seem weaker, they don't get exalted very much, they're actually more important. And the reality is that in the church, the members who seem to be weaker because they have these so-called lesser gifts are actually treated with greater care. They're actually treated with greater honor. And the point that Paul's making is, is that people who, who naturally are out there and are seen, they don't need special honor. They're, they're already getting it, effectively, just by being seen. The lesser parts are the ones that need the honor. The point is that there should be no division. All the body parts are necessary. Every part is necessary. Every part is indispensable. Every part is interdependent on each other. And so here's the key to avoiding the exaltation of the gifts of some of, uh, of some of the gifts over the others. It's found at the end of verse 24 and all the way through 26. And the key to avoiding exalting our gifts or exalting some of the greater gifts over the others is to know the purpose of the gifts. Look at the end of verse. Uh, let's just start at the beginning of. 24, whereas our more presentable members have need of it, have no need of it, excuse me, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So if we're going to avoid the exaltation and the pride that comes with having a more presentable gift, then we have to understand the purpose of the gifts. And notice the purpose in verse 25, so that, so that there will be no division. So in some way, God actually exalts these less presentable gifts. He does the exaltation of those less presentable gifts. That's what it says at the end of verse 24. He's composed the body in such a way to give honor to both, uh, kind of there's a natural honor that comes with the more presentable gifts, and he, he somehow gives honor to the less presentable gifts so that they do not feel as if they're lacking. So that, verse 25, there's no division. But they have the same care for one another. So here's where we come to the heart of these gifts and why we need them. It is for the care of the church. We ought to be using our gifts for the spiritual well-being of the church. Let me show you where I get that. At the end of verse 24, notice God is the one who has composed the body, giving it the diversity of gifts, so that there will be no division, verse 25, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, so that we use our spiritual gifts for the care of one another. Here's how he says it in verse 7. But to each one of you is given the manifestation of the Spirit, another way to say spiritual gift, for the common good. So, 
here's just a brief application um, just before we continue on in the text. How are you using your spiritual gifts? If it is to exalt yourself and to show people how much you know or how good you are at giving or helping or administering or whatever your gift is, then you're not using it as the Spirit intended. You're not using it as God intended it. You are to be using your gift. I am to be using my gift for the spiritual well-being of the church, for the common good. Anything else that we use our spiritual gift for divides It actually is divisive of us to use our spiritual gift in a way to exalt ourselves or to promote someone else because of their spiritual gift. Instead, we should be using our spiritual gift to care for one another. We'll talk about more how we can do this here at the end. So what does this mutual care look like? Because there ought to be some kind of... If the body parts, the physical body, are interdependent, right? they need each other, So in the spiritual body, we need each other to care for one another. So what does this mutual care look like? Each of us using our gifts for the mutual care, uh, for the care of one another. What does this look like? Well, verse 26 tells us. Here's an example. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Right? Have you ever had a toothache? Were you able to ignore it? Just say, you know what? In comparison to the rest of my body, it's really small. And so I'm just going to ignore it, and I've got stuff to do. Now, if you've had a significant toothache, then it cripples you. You are down. You can't go to work. See, this is the way it should be when we suffer, when one member in our church suffers pain. When one member suffers heartache, that we all suffer with it. Like the physical body, we don't have to force the rest of our body to go, oh yeah, toothache, I need to really feel bad. Okay, unless unless it's the man cold type thing, you know, where we um, overdo it a little bit. But, But the toothache kind of determines what's going to happen to the rest of the body. It, it's kind of automatic. We just naturally, um, we, we naturally suffer with it, almost involuntarily. And so that ought to be the case when someone in our church suffers, that we suffer with it. And the, same, the converse is also true, right? When someone rejoices, we shouldn't be going, that person, of all the people. Oh, we should rejoice. Or, you know what? That was a position I wanted to take, and now they're taking that position. I can't rejoice with that person. Instead, as a unified body who is working to mutually care for one another, we see that joy and we 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 experience that joy with them. So that's why God gave us this diversity in the unity of the body so that we would care for one another. Now, Paul applies it in verses 27 through 31, the application of the metaphor to the body of Christ. So the metaphor is the physical body. And so as we were going through, we already saw a lot of this application, but but Paul doesn't want to just for us to guess. He, He makes the application very clear in verse 27. Now you are Christ's body, right? 
And in this body, verses 28 through 30, God has appointed people with various gifts. And so here we have another list of spiritual gifts. And like with the list in verses 8 through 10, I would suggest that this is not exhaustive. This, this is not every single spiritual gift. Instead, this is a list that is representative. So in other words, Paul's not, his point is not to teach about spiritual gifts in the sense that here's the list, figure out which one's yours and go after it. That's not his point. Remember, he's responding to a problem. They are, in their church, exalting one kind of spiritual gift over another. And so Paul is giving a representative list. doesn't matter what kind of... Just like he, he explained the physical body, right? Did he give an exhausted list, exhaustive list of all the physical parts of the body? No, he listed the eye, the ear, the foot, the hand. And he mentioned the sense of smell. So that's not an exhaustive list. He's just given a representative list. Here's a few things just to get your, your wheels turning. And the same thing is true, I think, with this list of spiritual gifts. So we shouldn't dive in here deeply and, and go, okay, now here's where I'm just going to figure out which one is mine. He's just giving a, an example. However, at the beginning of this list, he does rank the top three. Notice the, that, that he ranks the, the first three, apostles, prophets, and teachers. And then after that, he just lists the other ones. So he says, and God is appointed in the church, verse 28, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And then the rest is just a list. doesn't seem to be in any order. Now, the difference between the first three and the last five is that the thir- first three are people. They're not actually gifts. All right, we could say the gift of apostleship or the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy, but he doesn't say that. He actually lists the, the person rather than the gift. In the last five, however, he actually lists the gifts, right? Uh, Miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, tongues. So in doing so, he seems to be showing something that's foundational for the establishment of the church at that time. That is, we're still in the first century, okay? still early church. And so in order for the church to be established, they needed these three... um, people groups, right? They needed apostles in order to confirm that this changeover, this 1,500-year changeover from the Old Testament law to the law of Christ, the, the, the promise of this Messiah in the Old Testament is this Jesus. They needed an apostle to, to be able to validate that. They also needed a prophecy and teaching just is just um, something that is always needed, trans-dispensational, we could say. But, but there's five other spiritual gifts that he lists here. The first two go together, miracles and healings. These were sign gifts that were used to validate and authenticate the message of the gospel, which I would suggest have been done away with. They're no longer needed. In verses 9 and 10, they're given in reverse order. So if, if we think about this, it doesn't seem like Paul's trying to keep this order. He's not saying apostles, prophets, teachers, and then here's the next most important one, miracles and then healings. Oh, because in the list in verses 9 and 10, he actually switches those two. I think what he's saying is, here's, a, here's the three important ones for the establishment, the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. Cornerstone is Jesus, but, but kind of the foundation of the church. Those are important. The rest, it's kind of a buckshot. Here's a couple more that I want you to, to think about. And then he lists tongues last. 
In verses 29 and 30, he says, not all are apostles. Here, he lists them as if they're people rather than talking about them as gifts. He says, not all are apostles, not all are prophets, teachers, not all are workers of miracles, not all are healers, tongue speakers, tongue interpreters. So he lists the first, the prominent three first. Those are foundational. And, and while we while the Corinthians might put a lot of stock in the apostles, the fact is the whole church can't be made up of just apostles. Right? And the whole church is not made up of just apostles. In verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. So what are the greater gifts? It seems to me that based on the context, it cannot be tongues, which I think is what the Corinthians were thinking. The Corinthians were exalting the speaking, the ability to speak in tongues over all the other gifts. And Paul's saying, let me list three that are more important than that, that they're foundational for the church, that really uh, positions that are more important than that. And then he lists five more, but he lists tongues last. And then in verses 8 and 10, when he lists the spiritual gifts there, he lists tongues second to last. So in verse 28, last, tongues are last. Verse 30, tongues are last. In verses 8 through 10, tongues are second to last. And then as I mentioned two weeks ago in chapter 14, he says, I'd rather speak five words that are understandable than 10,000 words in a tongue that cannot be understood. So that is not what Paul is saying in verse 31. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, like speaking in tongues. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's going against that very, uh, I think, staunchly. So to understand, understand what are the greater gifts, we need to think about the purpose of all the spiritual gifts. Remember what we said from earlier? What are the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Verse 25, verse 7. Jared. Okay. Good. That's an excellent word. Edify. So I would say that the greater gifts are the ones that provide the most spiritual edification. Okay, so if all of our responsibility is to build up the church with our gifts in some way, the best of those gifts are the ones that edify the most. So I don't think he's saying, desire the top three, apostles, uh, you know, apostleship, prophecy, and teaching. I don't think he's saying that. I think those are ones that God has appointed people to do that and were foundational for the establishment of the church. Certainly still has appointed teachers. But instead, I think he's saying desire or, verse 31, emphasize, earnestly emphasize the greater gifts. The ones that have the greatest capacity for the largest amount of spiritual edification, if that's what our task is as a church, to build up believers, then we should desire the gifts that do that the best. Now, that doesn't mean the the other ones don't do it at all. They all have to do it in some way, otherwise they're no good. Or we're not using them right. Okay, But but there are some gifts that, that would edify more. No matter what gift it is, make sure it's done in love. And that will be the focus of chapter 13. All right. Three thoughts on discerning your own spiritual gift. I I walked through this briefly uh, two weeks ago, but I just want to 
kind of um, tease this out a little bit more. First, first thought with regard to discerning your gifts is that the Bible never commands you to search for your spiritual gift. Okay, the Scriptures never say, look for your spiritual gift. There's an assumption that we're going to figure it out. Now, there is an expectation that we use them. So we, we have to be working to, to, um, to use them, but, but there's no command in Scripture for us to go find them. Remember, that's not Paul's point. He's not saying, find your spiritual gift. He's simply saying, don't misuse your spiritual gift. Okay, so that's the first observation. We'll, we'll touch on that more because you might be saying, well, if, I mean, how am I supposed to know? We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Secondly, those who are obedient to God and know their purpose within the church will discover their spiritual gift naturally. Okay, and this is just a personal reflection, observation. You can toss it out if you disagree. I, as I think about spiritual gifts, this, this is um, how I think about them. I think that those who are obedient to God in all their life will have no trouble finding their spiritual gift. So let me try to illustrate that with a with an illustration that doesn't quite do it justice, but I don't know that any illustration would. Okay. Consider two 20-year-olds who are trying to find out what career that he will have. Don't, don't, they don't have to be believers. Just two 20-year-olds trying to find out their career path. Which one's going to have a harder time trying to find his niche in life? The one who is well-rounded, thoughtful, hard-working, determined, self-motivated? Or the one over here who is lazy, looking for the easiest way out, doing just enough to get by? Okay. I, again, I, I realize that it's not a perfect example, but... But wouldn't you agree that this hardworking, obedient, determined 20-year-old has a lot more options and is more likely going to stumble on his career path? You know, the guy that's willing to work at Home Depot as a janitor, he's not the guy that's out there, well, you know, I'm only specialized in this one area, so I can't search for jobs out there. No, I'm willing to do whatever. I just need to work. I want to learn some skills. I want to learn how to work underneath people. I want to learn how to... You know, manage. I want to learn how to interact with people who are upset and those kinds of things. So he works at Home Depot as a janitor. The other 20-year-old is trying to do the least amount to get by. He's hoping he can make a living from either playing professional sports, which he's not gifted enough to do, or from playing in a band for the rest of his life. Right? I mean, you see my point? When it comes to the church, the people who know their spiritual gifts are... They're the ones who are actually well-rounded. They're actually using their... Uh, they're actually obedient to God in what He's commanding them to do. They're, they're actually listening to God's counsel and, and acting on it. They're actually serving the church, being led by the Spirit. They're Spirit-filled Christians. They give to specific needs. They, they, they have a sense of what's going on when a person is, is in trouble and when they need a need and they come to meet that need. They're caring for the needs of others. They're looking for opportunities to learn more and grow personally. And kind of magically, they stumble on 
these greater opportunities for service, they stumble on what they're gifted at. Because they've tried out everything. They want to please God in all areas of life and they've tried all these things out and they've realized this is what I'm especially good at. This is what I especially love to do. Maybe some other examples may or may not help. You know, person who's trying to figure out which clothes fit the best, right? The person who tries everything on or the person who just kind of sits over on the side and is like, well, I, I don't think that one would fit. Or, you know, the chef trying to find his best knife. You know, is it the one who's just over here, he's practicing on all kinds of different meats and, and vegetables and so on? Or is it this one over here who's like, well, look at the shape of that thing. In other words, get in the ball game. You want to find your spiritual gift? Start being obedient to God where you know you're supposed to be obedient. And I believe that God will reveal that spiritual gift to you. He will make it known. It will come clear. Become clear, I should say. So, you might be thinking, well, I've, I've done that, but I still don't know what my spiritual gift is. So, this is where uh, we talked about last week. What if you're serving to the best of your ability and you still don't know your spiritual gift, I would say search these three avenues in order. First, pray to God. Seek His Word for what, what are the spiritual gifts. I mean, how, what, what kind of things has Paul listed in all of his lists that he has? What are they? And then secondly, ask other people in the church. I mean, part of um, your ability and your validation of your ability is other people seeing that you're good at it. You know, so it might be the gift of giving. Maybe you're just, you have this special cord in your heart that just, um, it, it strums when someone else feels pain or when they're at a loss financially or, or physically or whatever. And you're able to step up and meet those and you love doing that. Even without the recognition. So ask other people in the church. And then finally, consider what you love doing the most. I listed this one last because, um, you know, maybe you love teaching men, but you're a woman. So you can't, according to 1 Timothy 3, right? Or you're, you're not qualified to teach. Or you just don't have the ability to teach. Maybe you love teaching, but you just don't have the ability to do it. And so that's why you need to seek God first, seek others second, and then consider what it is that you love to excel at the best. What, what is it that you take the most joy in when you are doing acts of service? for the spiritual well-being of the church. A couple, uh, couple um, applications here. All gifts are God's gifts. That is, all the spiritual gifts that are given to believers are given by God for the benefit of the church. Um, verse 6, there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works in all things, so He's the one who gives them. Verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, so it's something that comes from God. Verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, so the Spirit's the one giving it. Verse 24, middle of the verse, but God has so composed the body, He's the one who gives the gifts. So multiple times in the passage is God's, so all these gifts are God's gifts. Therefore, number one, don't use your spiritual gifts for your own spiritual well-being only. Okay, in other words, I have this spiritual gift 
of fill in the blank, and now I'm going to use it just for myself. So I can build my little Christian silo and advance myself as far as I can spiritually on my own. I don't care how this affects other people. That actually might slow me down. I don't want to, to use it for them. So think of your spiritual gifts not as something that you own, but if this first statement is true, all gifts are God's gifts, then think about it as something that you manage. This gift that's been given to me by God does not belong to me, and so I need to use it for God's purposes, not my own. So the value of your gift is not dependent on what it does for you, but what it does for the body. If all gifts are God's gifts, then secondly, don't exalt one gift over another or despise another gift. No gift or member is so great that it doesn't need the other gifts or members. So don't be proud if you have one of the showy gifts. And if you don't have one of the showy gifts, don't envy those who do. Don't think that you're useless or valueless. A spirit-filled Christian is identified not by the gift that he has, but by how he uses the gift. So no matter what you have, are you using your gift for the strengthening of the body? No gift is despised. No gift is unnecessary. So that means that no matter what gift we have, we should neither shrink into the background and neglect to use our gift, nor should we despise other people who seem to have weaker gifts than us. So yeah, you know, mine's more edifying than yours, so we don't despise other people and we don't shrink into the background because we have what we deem as a lesser gift. God says they're all valuable. They're all something that He honors. Thirdly, if all gifts are God's, God's gifts, then we should treat all people and all gifts with honor. One of the ways that we show honor for one another is that we remember verses 20, uh, verse 26. One of the ways that we show honor for one another is we share their pain and we share their joy. So we suffer when other Christians suffer. And sometimes it's the opposite, especially in our world, right? I mean, some of the most popular viral videos are ones of other people getting injured, right? Or the Darwin Awards. And yeah, there's some comedy in that. I'm not saying we can't take any pleasure out of those. But, but especially in the church, I mean, we shouldn't be taking pleasure in the suffering of another Christian. And what about the converse? Do we get frustrated when other church members get a promotion or have some sort of joy that we didn't want them to have? I mean, that shows our immaturity and perhaps our, our, um, our evil. Final thought here. You can't use your gifts if you don't gather with the church. And this is kind of just an extra. I didn't know how to put this in here, but but I think you, if you want to use your gifts, and I'm probably speaking to the choir here, but if you want to understand your gift, you want to use your gifts, then you have to meet with the church. You have to be here. You have to be here when we gather together. I'm not saying in the building. You can't. I can't use my spiritual gift throughout the week when none of you are here. Okay. If our responsibility as members is to edify one another with our gifts... What does that say about our need to be at church regularly? How can we do what God expects of us and encourage other believers 
when we're not gathering with them weekly. I mean, I think this is important. It's like our body can't contribute to the body if it's disconnected from the body. I mean, how, it, it's just such a silly um, illustration, but it's, it's, it, it speaks a lot of truth, doesn't it? And so, again, I recognize that you are the ones that are here most often, and, and you're here tonight, so... Um, but just a thought for you. All right? Any questions or comments?